World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ukumbi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The hostage deal between Israel and Gaza was struck after weeks of negotiations through Qatari, Egyptian and American mediation. But there's another country trying to lead diplomacy in the region, China. And the world's current sailing speed record has stood for more than a decade. Now there's a credible push not only to break it, but to sail past it. But the faster the sailboats get, the less they actually look like sailboats. But first... St. Mark's Church is in a nice leafy suburb a little ways south of Stockholm. It's a beautiful brick modernist church from the late 1950s, designed by the architect Sigurd Leverenz, and fans of brutalist architecture come to visit from all over. Matt Steinglass is a Europe correspondent for The Economist. I visited it on October 24th, when the children of the parish were staging a music recital for United Nations Day. The church was packed with middle-class parents pushing fancy Swedish baby strollers. To be clear, this is not a rich neighborhood, but it's not a poor neighborhood, and it is not the kind of neighborhood you would think would have a gang violence problem. Yet the parish recently faced a tragedy. Just a month earlier, a 13-year-old student at the elementary school next door to St. Mark's was found dead in a forest a little ways south. He had been shot as part of an escalating war between drug gangs that are increasingly using children as foot soldiers. Uh, The teenager's world is rocking. It is an uncertainty that uh, it's not good. It's going to affect their whole lives. At the church, I met Pia Sophia Passmark, the parish vicar. She runs support groups to help the community keep violence out and to help kids cope with its effects. And right as we were sitting and talking, Miss Passmark suddenly jumped up and ran out of the room. She had spotted two boys outside on a bicycle path, beating up a third one who was lying on the ground as they kicked him. Ms. Passmark says you used to be able to tell which sorts of kids were going to get recruited by gangs. They were often less well-off or lacked confidence. But nowadays, she says, it's almost impossible to tell who will get recruited. And it's not about the money, it's not about uh, the drugs. We can see it's something about being seen, the attitude, the image, it's a better word. All of this means that Sweden, a country which is usually regarded as a placid, non-violent icon of human rights and a well-developed welfare democracy, 
is now facing one of the worst organized crime problems in Northern Europe. But give us a scale of the problem here. Is this a, a big problem for Sweden or a big problem in an absolute sense? There were 324 shootings in the country between January and October. 48 of those were fatal. That's a rate which is several times higher than its neighbors, like Denmark, Norway, and Finland. It's many, many times lower than a really dangerous country like the United States. Nevertheless, it feels very dangerous to Swedes and to people from Northern Europe. And there are also some interesting wrinkles about the way the violence happens. Gangs in Sweden sort of pioneered the use of hand grenades and improvised explosives to attack each other's houses, which they sometimes use as a warning because usually no one is killed and it's a way of sending a very violent message about how serious they are. The government has been toughening its laws for the last few years, but they say they are way behind the curve and they should have started doing this 10 years ago. So to what degree is this organized crime and how much is it just sort of disparate little gangs? It's very organized, more organized, actually. The biggest drug gang in the country is called Foxtrot. It's run by a Kurdish Swede named Rava Majid. They now control a very large portion of the Swedish drug market, according to police. Rava grew up in Uppsala, which is a small city a ways north of Stockholm. And he, over the course of the last three or four years, after serving a term in prison for smaller scale drug dealing, has built a network, expanding its territory relentlessly, making alliances with other gangs, reincorporating them, recruiting their members away. He is now residing in Turkey. He fled in 2018, but he runs things at a distance. And much of the communications of the gang runs online. In October, there was an incident where a, a Swedish rapper said that there was going to be a very important live broadcast on his Instagram channel. And when people tuned in, they saw one of Rava Majid's lieutenants waving around a gold-plated AK-47 and making all kinds of threats against Swedish prosecutors and other gang members and so forth. This is a fellow who now lives in Iraq, and there have been rumors that he was dead. So we wanted to dispel those rumors by going live on a rapper's channel. The gangster who goes by the alias of Benzema said that his opponents were not men but whores, that they had been so cowardly that they sent the police after him. Pretty standard gangster stuff, but a serious threat in the current Swedish context. So as this gang problem has, has grown, what has Sweden's government been doing about it? The crime wave is a challenge for the Swedish government. Ulf Christensen, the center-right prime minister, won elections last year by blaming gang violence on the center-left Social Democrats who had been running the show since 2014. And his voters expect that his government is going to do something concrete to tackle crime. It's particularly pressing for the moderates because they rely on the support of the Sweden Democrats, which is a hard-right anti-immigrant party who really make a big deal about crime. But tackling crime is not a tremendously easy proposition. They are lengthening criminal sentences. They are lowering the age of criminal responsibility so that you can prosecute kids at younger ages, since gangs tend to recruit younger kids. 
they are giving the police more powers for surveillance. Sweden used to be quite restrictive in what the police could do in terms of monitoring phones and that sort of thing. But sentences in Sweden are still shorter than those in other Northern European countries. And other parties' propositions are just not practical at all. The Sweden Democrats think that 13-year-old children should be liable for uh, adult penalties for severe crimes. The Social Democrats leader at one point said maybe the army should be deployed to help. It's not really clear what they can do about recruiting kids for gangs. And it's a tough problem. You're painting a picture here, Matt, of a government that's really kind of scrambling to try to contain this problem. Yes, Other Nordic countries think of Sweden as a country that has been too politically correct for too long and has refused to acknowledge the problems that its justice system is facing. And the Swedes know this about themselves as well. They talk, among other things, about applying what they call Danish penalties to Swedish problems. In Denmark, you can sentence criminals to twice as long in prison if they're involved in gang violence as opposed to other kinds of violence. And that shows that the Swedes basically understand that other countries in the region have been quicker to tackle these gang violence issues than they have. So do you think what's being discussed now would actually get things under control, or is there more that needs to be done? Police are optimistic about the enhanced surveillance powers that they've received, but they also point out that victories against gangs in any country tend to be temporary. Just in 2020, a huge international gang communications network on encrypted chat apps called EncroChat was cracked by Dutch and French police. That evidence was used by Swedish police to send dozens of gang kingpins to jail. The result was that the gangs that dominated the drug trade in Sweden at that time were broken up and Foxtrot, the new kids on the block, took over the whole thing. Thanks very much for your time, Matt. Thank you, Jason. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Today marks day six of a shaky truce between Israel and Hamas. Over the last week, more than 200 prisoners and hostages have been exchanged. The pause in fighting has allowed supplies of food, fuel and medicine to enter Gaza. America, alongside Qatar and Egypt, oversaw the negotiations and pushed for a deal. But another country has also been working on diplomatic solutions to the conflict. Last week, officials from across the Arab and Muslim world arrived in Beijing to speak with China's foreign minister, Wang Yi. Posing for photos alongside representatives from Egypt and Saudi Arabia, he called for action from the international community to stop the violence in Gaza from spreading. He said that China stands firmly on the side of fairness and justice. China 
As a permanent member of the UN Security Council, China was just one stop for these foreign ministers. But Beijing is pushing to become the main diplomatic player in the region. Earlier this year, China was proud to help broker a deal to restore diplomatic relations between the two great sectarian rivals of the Middle East, Iran and Saudi Arabia. David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief. And when the war in Gaza reignited old conflicts in the region, Beijing seized the chance to declare itself a peace broker. And at the same time, it can see a chance to seize long-term advantage and push the Americans further off the centre stage of world affairs once the war has ended. So why is Beijing taking such an interest in the Middle East? China has been building its diplomatic credentials in the Middle East for a long time on the back of a giant investment in the economies of the Middle East. China is a country with not much oil and gas of its own. It is a huge and increasingly important buyer for Iran, for the Saudis, for all number of countries in the Middle East. It wants to invest in the Middle East, to use Middle Eastern capital. And in recent years, under Xi Jinping, we've seen China so much more confident that its model of business-first, interests-based, values-free world politics and diplomacy is just what the Middle East wants. And until Hamas's sudden attack on October the 7th, you could actually see China's foreign minister Wang Yi boasting that there was a kind of wave of reconciliation sweeping the region and that China should get the credit. Obviously, the war between Hamas and Israel has been a big challenge to some of those claims, but Beijing still sees a role for itself that could leave it at the end of this in a stronger position. But then what do the regional leaders see in China? They see a gigantic customer for their oil and gas. They see a country which offers them an alternative. If you are the Saudis chafing under rebukes from the Americans and others about your human rights policies, China doesn't have any interest in your human rights policies. If you're the Syrians or the Iranians chafing under Western-led international sanctions. China opposes sanctions in almost any context. And so they've been a very reliable source of completely non-judgmental business and an alternative to what China would say is a kind of bossy, lecturing, hypocritical Western world. And David, coming back to the war in Gaza, how does China view Hamas's role in that? China has never called Hamas a terrorist group. And since the October 7th Uh, attacks, has downplayed the atrocities that it committed, although we've just seen a little bit more balance from the main evening news talking about how Hamas did start this with the attack on Israeli civilians. But China, going back to the days of Chairman Mao back in the 60s and 70s, has been very much on the side of the Palestinians as a kind of anti-colonial, anti-imperialist kind of ally. And more recently, China has been extremely clear that it thinks that the root cause of violence in the region is the Palestinians' lack of a state. And it has consistently treated the Palestinian Authority as a government, and in fact treats Hamas as something like a kind of political entity, the kind of legitimate governing authority of the Gaza Strip that it would like the group to be. You said that Beijing would like to gain some advantage from playing peacemaker in Gaza. If China was able to help secure a longer-term peace deal, how might that work in their favour? I think China is sincere that it would like to see the violence stop. It doesn't need to see 
children killed in large quantities to advance its interests. It's not sort of psychopathic. It is extremely cold and calculating about its self-interest, and it has a giant interest in stability in a region where it has invested a lot of money and needs a secure supply of oil and energy. So they are telling the truth when they say that they would like the war to end soon. But beyond that, China's greatest rival, the competition that overhangs all of Chinese diplomacy, is its contest for influence with America. This idea that this is a chance, once again, to paint the Americans as bullying warmongers. And you've seen state media ramping up the idea that America is pouring weapons into the Middle East, into this conflict, that America has taken a very one-sided view of this. And you've seen every attempt to paint President Joe Biden as a selfish actor, that if he has been trying to reassure the Israelis that he has their back, even as he tries to restrain them, that that cannot possibly be for sort of reasons of statesmanship, that this is about his re-election, that there's a very strong lobby of the Jewish-American vote, Jewish-American business interests, any number of Chinese academics and scholars, even former ambassadors to the Middle East, have been all over the state media. And I'm afraid on social media, there has been an absolute torrent of anti-Semitic attacks on Israel, comparing them with Nazis and stuff, which have not been, in every case, taken down by China's strict censorship. How will all of this America bashing help the Chinese cause? So since the invasion of Ukraine, almost a couple of years ago now, China has seen a chance to position itself as the spokesman for a developing world, the global South, that is extremely unconvinced by Western and American arguments about right and wrong, whether that's Russia's invasion of Ukraine or now in terms of condemning Hamas in the Middle East. And for China, the idea of positioning itself as this pragmatic, peace-loving, all-about-business, non-judgmental alternative to the ideological bullying hegemon that is America, that pleases China. And whenever it can take that chance, it will seize it. And Chinese diplomats and academics will point to opinion polls that show that in the Arab countries, plenty of publics already favor China, saying it is more trustworthy than America. China does have to worry about instability. But if at the end of the day, this crisis is another giant distraction sitting in Joe Biden's in-tray alongside so many other world crises, if that focuses Joe Biden's attention elsewhere and stops him leading the competition with China, then China will take that. David, should America be worried about China's growing influence in the region? I mean, America clearly is concerned that America has less leverage over the Saudis if the Saudis can turn to the Chinese for investments or business or to sell their oil. But I think actually this terrible conflict in Gaza shows you that this is not a regional clash of competition for influence between China and America. It's global. And so all of those arguments where China is saying that it's super pragmatic, non-judgmental interests first, forget about values, approach to world affairs, that is a message not just for the Middle East. That is a message aimed at the entire world, particularly the developing world. And China hopes that this is just the latest way in which it can gain a march on America in this giant clash for the principles and the rules that are going to run the world order in the 21st century. David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Wind has helped to propel humans across great expanses of sea for millennia. 
harnessing that power was vital for exploration and eventually trade. 150 years ago, the Cutty Sark was the fastest sailing ship of its time. When it dashed across the world carrying tea from China and wool from Australia, it could reach 17 knots or more than 30 kilometers per hour. But that is nothing compared with today's craft. Modern racing yachts have become pretty radical. They don't look like traditional yachts anymore. And that's because they're based on 150 years of advances in aerodynamics and hydromechanics. So they go much quicker than the Cuddy Sark. Paul Markilli is The Economist's innovation editor. The current speed record for a sailing vessel was set in 2012. It was at 65 knots, or 120 kilometres an hour. But right now there are two teams who are attempting to break that record. Indeed, smash it by some degree. Well, let's start with the the record as it stands. 120 kilometres an hour, 60-odd miles an hour in old money. How did things even get that far? Well, speeds have been rising for years as people have got to grips with the science. And it's been helped by the fact that boats have been changing shape. One of the things they've been doing is to avoid the drag, minimise this. So hulls have got narrower and slippier through the water. And the present record, well, that's set by Paul Larson. He's an Australian. And he was using an odd-looking catamaran called Vesta's Sail Rocket 2. Now, interesting about this, it rose well above the water to get rid of that drag, rising on hydrofoils. And these are sort of a wing in the water that can lift the hull well clear. And it was also propelled by something called a wing sail. Now, a wing sail is a rigid structure, and it looks a little bit like an aircraft wing, but one that has been mounted vertically on the hull. A wing sail can harness the wind much more efficiently than cloth sails and produce a much faster speed. And you say that that existing record is set to be smashed, hoped to be smashed. What are the rules? How do you smash it? Well, the people who set these rules say that it has to be done over a one-way course of 500 metres. And to qualify, the craft has to be able to float, have at least one person on board, be propelled only by the wind, and be in contact with the water. And as I said before, these new contenders, now they're looking to break that record with some very strange-looking craft that comply with the rules, but neither of them looks anything like an ordinary yacht. Well, let's talk about them. Uh, What do they look like? Well, the first one is SP-80. Now, to my mind, and several other people who look at it, it looks more like an SR-71 Blackbird, the old spy plane that the Americans used during the Cold War. Now, this boat comes from a group out of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne, Switzerland. Now, the SP-80, it hasn't even got a wing sail. And instead of a sail, it is instead propelled by a big kite. And the kite pulls it along. At high speeds, this vessel also rises well above the water on hydrofoils. And it's a two-seater, so the pilot sits in the front of the cockpit and steers the vessel, while the co-pilot is in the back, and they're in charge of making sure the kite stays in the right direction. Both are going to have their hands full. Yeah, this is sounding less and less like a a sailboat the, the more you go on. Tell me about the other one. Well, the other one actually is even stranger. This comes from a company called Syroco. They're a marine technology startup based in Marseille in France. And the company is going for a two-seater, a bit like the SP-80, and it's also powered by a kite that will tow it along. But their vessel comes in three parts. 
Now, the main body of their boat, which is the bit in the middle, is a torpedo-shaped compartment, and that's where the crew will sit. And it kind of scoots along the surface, pulled by the kite, which is the second part. And as the kite gets faster and faster, the pod rises out of the sea with the two crew members in. And then the third part comes into play. This is a small hydrofoil that remains in the water, and it's dragged along, effectively anchoring the craft to the water. And that, of course, stops the whole contraption from flying away entirely. And complies with the rule that some part has to be in contact with the water, I guess. Otherwise, this is just a very complicated kite. (laughs) It is indeed a very complicated kite, and the hydrofoil anchors it to the water and says, no, no, we're still a sailboat. And so what kind of speed are these teams going for here when they smash the record, as you're talking about? Well, they're both looking at being able to go at over 80 knots. Now, that's more than 150 kilometers an hour. That's really quick. And so all of the technological development that's gone into making this happen, does it, does it have uses elsewhere? Well, they may seem like very extreme designs, but they certainly do. We're already seeing some experimental cargo ships fitted with wing sails to help cut fuel costs and reduce the cost of transporting goods around the world. And some of these vessels are also exploring the use of a kite to tow them along. So that's two areas. And there's also some other sort of fundamental physics that are going on here as well, which could be transferable to make shipping more efficient. And the return to wind power in commercial shipping certainly would be a rather pleasing closure of the historical circle. But that said, wing sails and kites are unlikely to look as magnificent as a Cutty Sark once did, with all 32 sails billowing. Thanks very much for joining us, Paul. That's the pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Not had enough of that sweet, sweet economist analysis? Well, the latest treat I'll offer you is this week's episode of Drum Tower, our subscriber-only show on China. My colleagues visit the Gay Games in Hong Kong, an Olympics-like sporting event, and use it as a lens to ask whether Hong Kong can remain such an open global city under mounting pressure from the mainland. You know how to get to that, right? Right. Subscribe to Economist Podcasts Plus. All you could conceivably need to know is in the show notes, or it's a Google away. Just search Economist Podcasts. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.